Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff Ashley, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming. As we just read, we will be in 2 John today, verses 10 and, uh, and 11. And so as you turn there, I want to tell you about my night last night. So last night was one of the nights uh, that uh, is somewhat common in my household, which is that one or both of my kids decide they're not going to sleep, which means they decide that I'm not going to sleep. And, uh, and so I'm laying awake about 3 a.m. and I realize I don't really like my opening illustration. So I decided to uh, completely scratch it. I had a story I was going to tell you. I decided let's go in a different direction. So instead, I want you to do something participatory, I want you to think of the worst thing you have ever, whether it's uh, intentionally or not, uh, the worst thing you've ever let into your house. The worst thing that you have ever let into your house. And so I'll give you a few examples of that as you're thinking about it. We've all had bugs, cockroaches maybe, something like that that's gotten in. We've all had uh, geckos or lizards of some sort, which is my worst nightmare because I don't like those. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I've told the, uh, the story before that my roommates decided it would be really funny to trap a bird in my bathroom so that whenever I stumbled in there in the morning in a stupor, I opened the door and all of a sudden a bird kamikazes me and, uh, and I, my first thought is it's a bat and it's going for my neck. Unfortunately, my uh, bathroom was right at the top of the stairs. I literally almost fell down the stairs which is a horrible way to die. Death by sparrow is not a a very good thing to have on your tombstone. Another example from my childhood uh, is that uh, in all of the time when I was growing up, we lived in the same house. We only had one mouse that ever got into the house. Unfortunately, my, uh, my dad had already gone to work, and so my mom took my brother, my sister, uh, and, uh, and I and locked us all in her bedroom with the mouse. My mom and my sister got on the bed and barked out orders while my brother and I had tennis rackets trying to kill the mouse. And, uh, and my mom said, we're not going to school until you kill this mouse. So now I'm left with a predicament. Do I not go to school? which is an awesome idea, or do I backhand a mouse, which also sounded really fun uh, to me. Eventually, we did end up uh, killing the mouse. Or one more example, this one not involving myself, but a, uh, a friend of mine a few uh, years ago, a girl that I knew, uh, found a five-foot rat snake in her bedroom. Even if you're one of those people who like snakes, I kind of like snakes, but you probably would shudder to think of a snake that size just loose in your room, under your bed, whatever it, it, uh, it might be. To make it even more dramatic, uh, she lived on the second floor of an apartment. They searched the entire apartment, had no idea how it got in, eventually found out she had just gotten back from a, uh, a, a trip to a, a camp And so they figured out that it had gotten into her bag, which means the entire car ride, it was in her bag. Her entire trip up the stairs, she was carrying this five-foot snake in her bag. So what is it for you, though? What is it that's the worst thing that's ever gotten into your house? A possum, a skunk, your cousin Eddie, whatever it might B, we all have experience of certain things that somehow get into our house that we would prefer to not be here or to not be there. And that is what our passage is about this morning. Something that's actually worse than a snake or a mouse or even your cousin, Eddie. So let's pray and then we'll dive in and we'll see 
what that is that John is warning us about this morning. First, I'll ask you to just pray for yourself. As you come in, maybe you're scared, maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're questioning or doubting. To pray for the Lord to overcome that. And then when you pray a similar prayer for those around you, whether you know them or not, the Lord would corporately, collectively give us grace to hear his word. And then lastly, would you pray for me, for faithfulness and boldness? So Father, we bless you because you are worthy of our blessing. You're a good father who gives good gifts and you've given us your word. And so as we turn our attention to it, we pray that you would uh, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear that we might behold the glory of your son shining through his word. We pray these things in his name, amen. Let's look at 2 John, verse 10. 2 John 10, we'll start with just the first phrase there which says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. So immediately we're thrown into the question of what teaching? So we realize there's this importance in this text to the surrounding context. This passage begins by mentioning this teaching. So we need to ask the question, what teaching? To answer that, we look in the immediate context and when we do, we read in 2 John 7, which Zach talked about last week, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Or 2 John verse nine, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in, here's the phrase, the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the Son. And so you see in the context, not only of 2 John, but also in 1 John, the context, this teaching involves some sort of deficient Christology, some sort of defective soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. So it's a defective view of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully Man, So this is the same teaching that we saw as we were, uh, we spent months in the book of 1 John. The same teaching that's been denied by the secessionists there who had come in corrupting the church with this false gospel and then it eventually left and and provided this schism in the church as they divided the church. There's certain false teachers, they're heretics, they're antichrists, they had denied Christ and left the church. And so we see the same context in our passage this morning. So our passage is about false teachers. But what does that mean? Who is a false teacher? Who is a heretic? And to understand that, it might be helpful to kind of have the image in your mind of a target with a bullseye in the, uh, the center. So you have these concentric circles. Within this uh, center, the, the, the center circle, are doctrines that you would uh, consider to be of first order importance. If you were to deny these particular doctrines, that's in effect denying the faith. You cannot be a Christian in any historic orthodox sense of the word. So in this circle, you would have things like the deity and humanity of Christ, the Trinity, uh, the uh, crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection, and so forth. These doctrines, this center uh, first order doctrines, uh, provide the boundaries 
the boundaries between Christians on one hand and non-Christians on the other hand, whether those non-Christians are atheists or people who would consider themselves to be people of faith, like proponents of the various cults or uh, uh, world religions. And so these are the doctrines that are worth dying for, this center of the circle. But then you move out beyond that and you have this second circle and these are doctrines of obviously second order importance. They're important, but not necessary for salvation. Now different people put different things in, uh, in this particular uh, uh, circle. We might put things like the doctrine of election or the sufficiency of scripture or how you view the various covenants, how they fit together in scripture. Uh, and these are very important. They profoundly affect the way that we read scripture, the way that we disciple people and so forth. These are very important. But genuine Christians actually disagree on these things. They may divide one denomination from another denomination or one church from another church or one Christian from another Christian, uh, but uh, they, they aren't boundaries for orthodoxy. They're instead boundaries for denominations or churches or whatever it might be. And these are things they're not worth dying for so much as, but they are worth fighting for. So you have the center, you have the second circle, and then you have this third circle, which are doctrines of third order. Most of the things that you would think of concerning eschatology, the doctrine of the last times, would probably be in here. They should be discussed, they should be debated, they should be studied, they're important, but churches and Christians shouldn't divide over them. My point is, the further away from the center you get, the the less epistemological certainty you should have about those doctrines. The less that you should be willing to die for them or even fight for them, but rather just to discuss them. Now this isn't kind of a perfect system. Some people might, instead of having three layers, they might have four layers or five layers or something like that. And you might question where does a particular doctrine go? Uh, You might consider something second order that I consider third order or vice versa. So my goal isn't to fill in those blanks for you and put every single doctrine in a particular place, but rather just to give you this idea of these concentric circles to make a point. And that point is that on any topic, Even these third order or fourth order or fifth order, if you have five circles, uh, any topic whatsoever, there is an actual true biblical position. You and I uh, might debate uh, whether or not premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism is correct or what to think of the gifts of the spirit. You and I might be confused about these things, but God isn't confused. And God's word isn't cluttered or unclear when it comes to these issues. One is true, even if we don't know which one is necessarily true. My point is that we all have holes in in our theology. We all have errors, but not all error is heresy, and that's the point that I'm trying to make here. Historically, for an error to be considered worthy of the the term heretical, it had to involve a denial of one of these first order doctrines. And it was typically condemned by the early church as being beyond the bounds of orthodoxy. So whenever Christians would gather together throughout the entire empire, they would have a council and they would say, this is not something that Christians are free to disagree on. And in this passage, John isn't just talking about errors in the second level or in the third level, but rather these particular errors that we would know as 
heresy. Whatever John is going to tell us to do with false teachers, and we'll get to that, we first need to understand what type of false teaching he is meaning. He's meaning a denial of one of these first order doctrines. So he isn't meaning any person who has some slightly different theological conviction regarding secondary or tertiary doctrines, but rather someone who unrepentantly denies orthodox truth. In other words, whatever we do with this passage today, we can't apply this text to everyone that we agree with, we disagree with on something, but rather those with whom the overwhelming majority, the unanimous opinion of the Christian church has unanimously disagreed on the most important things. So this is a reminder for us, as we get into this passage, this is a reminder for us to bear in mind one of the things that Zach talked about last week, that is the danger of going on ahead of the teaching of Christ. We talked about that a little bit last week. That's the phrase there that goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ. In other words, the threat of theological innovation. Now, I love innovation. I love that I can literally push one button on a phone and call my wife. I don't have to remember dozens of phone numbers in my head that I not get confused, I don't have to use a rotary phone anymore where you put your finger in the rotary dial and you begin to spin the wheel and then you get six numbers in and you realize you made a mistake and you have to start all over again. I love that I don't have to do that. I wasn't alive whenever they had switchboards and so forth, but I love the fact that when I pick up the phone, I don't just hear the neighborhood conversation. I love uh, technological innovation or whenever I was a kid, if there was a storm, our TV signal would go out. So what would I do? I'd have to get up on the roof to mess with the antenna, which makes a whole lot of sense. A 13-year-old on a roof in the rain while lightning is striking and I'm touching a metal pole sounds like a great idea. So now I'm glad that we have remote controls and we have internet TV and all of those kinds of things. My point is that uh, technological innovation is often a really, really good thing. But theological innovation is always a really bad thing. Now, we aren't meeting right now for theological equipping class, but we're still recording them and posting them online. I hope you've been listening because it just so happens that the past three weeks, this wasn't planned like this. It just so happened the past three weeks, we've talked about Mormonism and Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses. What do those things have in common? Well, they all do exactly what the Johannine epistles, that is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, what the Johannine epistles are warning against. They don't merely distort the second order or third order doctrines, like those that divide the various denominations, like Baptists versus Presbyterians. No, they all distort first order doctrines. In fact, as it relates to these three religions, Mormons, uh, uh, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them have a very deficient and defective Christology and soteriology. The very kind of thing this passage is talking about. They would all confess that they, quote, believe in Jesus. They simply have a different picture of who that Jesus is. They recreate Jesus into some image who isn't like the biblical portrait at all. He's a caricature. They deny that he's the son of God who is himself God in the flesh. In other words, they're simply these old heresies, the teachings of heretics like Arius or Pelagius, but wearing fancy new clothes. So that's the who of this text. Who is this passage about? It's about false teachers. It's about heretics. It's about those who deny Christ by distorting the teaching about him. 
So to this point, we've just considered the if. If someone brings another gospel, another teaching, heterodoxy, heresy, if someone brings anything other than orthodoxy, then what? Let's keep reading to, uh, to find out. 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Again, so far we've seen the who, that is false teachers or heretics. Now we get to the what. And initially it seems rather straightforward. Don't let this heretic into your house or greet them. So does John mean by that that when Mormon missionaries show up at your door that you should draw the curtains hide behind your couch rather than inviting them inside to chat? Does this mean that you can't have your Muslim coworker over for dinner? Does it mean that if your uh, Jehovah's Witness neighbor says hello, you just stoically ignore them? After all, it says don't give them any greeting whatsoever. So you just don't say hi and you don't wave and you just don't say anything at all. You completely neglect them. No, it doesn't mean any of that. In fact, I think the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that you should minister to and love your neighbor and coworkers of other uh, faiths. That's one of the things that we talk about here. You don't have to go across the world to engage uh, the, the, the nations with the gospel. The nations are in your workplace. The na- nations are in your neighborhood. So you should invite them into your house. You should say hel- hello and so forth. So why does John say to not let them in the, your house, to not greet them? That's a great question. In order to answer it, we need to understand something of the culture and the context of the first century. In particular, we need to understand hospitality within the context of the ancient world. Today, if you're taking a trip, you have lots of options, right? You can rent a house through VRBO or Airbnb or something like that. You can stay at a hotel. If you stay at a hotel, you can even choose your level of luxury. As a kid, we never made reservations. Instead, we would just simply roll into town. We'd drive until my dad got tired. Wherever we ended up, that's where we would stay. And we would just look for Motel 6. That was always the beginning of the conversation. And if they had no vacancies, then we would move up a little bit in our budget. And then if there was no room there, we would move up. Eventually, we'd find ourselves at a Holiday Inn. But occasionally... There would be no room even at the Holiday Inn and we'd go to the Embassy Suites and I felt like a king. That is luxury as a kid because I didn't have to sleep on the floor. I actually got like a rollaway or a couch or something like that. But in the ancient world, you didn't have those kinds of options. You didn't have chain hotels or motels dotting the landscape. There were inns, but those were generally places of ill repute. Think of some creepy looking old motel on the edge of town advertising color TV right? You can rent rooms by the hour or something like that. Real seedy, dirty place. That's kind of what it was. So if you were traveling for whatever reason in the ancient world, you would generally camp outside or you'd find a cave or something to stay in. Or if you had the opportunity, you would stay with someone. So let's talk about this last option of staying with someone because that was by far the best option and you need to understand this option in order to understand this text. The word for this is obviously hospitality. This is a word that we use. In Greek, the word we most often translate as hospitality is formed from two words, philo, which means love, and uh, xenos, which means foreigner or stranger. If you ever heard the word xenophobia, 
which means fear of or prejudice against a foreigner or a uh, stranger. And so originally, the idea of hospitality was showing love for a stranger, although it eventually expanded beyond that to just showing love toward any outsider, whether they were a stranger or not. It could have been a cousin, it could be a parent, it could be a child, anyone that didn't live within the context of your own home, whenever they stayed with you, that was hospitality. And throughout scripture, we see that hospitality is a biblical virtue. In fact, it's actually commanded of God's people. For example, Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. First Timothy 3, 2, this, these are the requirements for elders. Therefore, an uh, elder or overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Hebrews 13, one through two, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now notice in these last two verses that you see hospitality is explicitly connected to the idea of love. Just hold that thought in the back of your mind for a second. Hospitality and love overlap. We'll come back to that. For now, just think about the fact hospitality was expected throughout the ancient world and it's practically and particularly important within the context of Christianity. In fact, if you were a traveler, you were somewhat dependent on the idea of hospitality. Sometimes you might just show up in town and, uh, and hope and pray for someone to show kindness to you. We see that a few times in, in scripture, like when Jesus sends out the disciples in pairs of two. Other times, you might send a letter to a friend or relative before time and let them know you would be in town and ask if you can stay with them. Still other times, you might get a letter from someone and you might get a friend to write a letter to his friend because you're staying with a friend of a friend or something like that. And these letters of acquaintance were really important because part of the meaning, part of the nuance, part of the context of old world hospitality is that by virtue of the fact that you're inviting them into the, your home, you're also vouching for them in front of the community, right? You're vouching for the person that is staying with you. If someone stayed under your roof, you were essentially bearing witness to them before the community. And this is really important because this granted to that traveler a measure of temporary status and thus protection of laws. So the traveler's status within that village or town or area would change from stranger and outsider to a beloved guest, to one who is a, a welcome guest. A stranger or outsider is afforded very little legal protection, very little social protection, but a guest was honored. In fact, if, if someone was your guest, they would receive a, a status that is equal to your own within the community. So you see how hospitality in the ancient world wasn't merely an act of providing a B&B. &B. It wasn't merely providing protection against the elements, but rather it was also a means of providing a, a protection against injustice and oppression and so forth. So that's the importance of hospitality within the ancient world culture. That's one crucial bit of information and context that you need in order to understand this passage. The other that you need to understand is the role of itinerant ministers. Itinerant ministers, all right? 
So again, in ancient culture, it was very different from ours. Uh, when, when 2 John was being written, Christians didn't have these fancy leather-bound Bibles that they would put up on their shelves. They couldn't log on to pull up their latest equipping class online. They couldn't order the latest uh, Christian book from their favorite Christian author on Amazon. The gospel didn't travel throughout the empire by virtue of Amazon or radio waves or internet. Instead, it traveled on the backs of these itinerant teachers, these preachers, these missionaries. Some of them were good, others were not so good, but all were dependent on the hospitality of Christians within the various villages and towns that they would visit. So hospitality was a really big deal within the context of the ancient world. It was a big deal in Greco-Roman culture, it was a big deal in Jewish culture. It was a really big deal in regards to the missional endeavors of the early church. And yet John says to not be hospitable. In the context of 2 John, he says don't be hospitable in this context. And not only John, we read something similar in the early church document called the Didache. The Didache Chapter 11, verses one through three. Whosoever therefore comes and teaches you all these things that have been said before, receive him. But if the teacher uh, himself turns and teaches another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. But if he teach so as to increase righteousness in the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. So here's my question that I want us to ponder together. If hospitality is so important, if it's explicitly commanded in scripture multiple times, and it is, and if it's so intimately connected with love, if it's such a cultural expectation, then why does John and why do the early church fathers tell the church not to receive someone into their house or greet them? In, in effect, why do they tell Christians to withhold hospitality? Before I answer that, let me repeat it because I think this is really important to understand this text. If hospitality is so important, not only culturally, but also biblically, why would John, as an apostle in an authoritative document, why would he tell Christians to not be hospitable toward these particular teachers? Think about that. Feel the weight of that. Wrestle with that seeming tension. The Bible says, be hospitable. John says, in this context, don't be hospitable. Now, let me tell you why. The reason is because of the threat presented by these false teachers because of the inherent danger of heresy. If you ever question why theology is important, consider this text. The Apostle John has just said that doctrine is so important that it should cause you to ignore or neglect otherwise binding cultural and biblical expectations and virtues. Hospitality is absolutely a Christian command and virtue, but absolutely not when it comes to heresy. Over and over and over again, as we explore Scripture, we find it to be the case that as Christians, we must define words by Scripture and not culture or feelings. We talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago with the word love. Culture says that we're to love. We're, we are a culture that's obsessed with the concept of love. We just don't know what love actually entails. Culture says that if you really love someone, you should encourage her to explore her sexuality. If you really love your child, you shouldn't spank them. That will hurt his ego. If you love a criminal, you shouldn't punish him. 
Maybe the most loving thing for you to do for your unborn child is to abort her. If you really love your friend, you should encourage him to just get divorced. This is the problem when we use biblical words in non-biblical ways. It might feel to us like a terribly unloving thing for the apostle to tell these brothers and sisters to deny hospitality to false teachers, but that's only because our gauge for assessing what actually is love is broken. Our compass is pointing in a particular direction. It just isn't north. So this same really short letter that just a couple of verses ago told us to love one another now tells us that whatever it means to love one another, it does not mean to give rude, uh, room and board to false teaching. So that's the historical context of this passage. The author is telling the church to deny their cultural conventions by refusing hospitality to, to such false teachers. Why is that so important? Let's keep reading. Second John 11. Second John 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here's the danger that he's going to talk about. By greeting this false teacher, you share in his work. Now, by greeting, I don't mean waving or saying hello. Again, the context is hospitality, and in particular, welcoming someone into your home and extending not only room and board, but also a degree of status in the community. The word greet in Greek carries the connotation of blessing. You aren't just saying hello, you're blessing them, you're welcoming them, you're sanctioning them, you're approving them, you're bearing witness to them as being faithful and trustworthy. So you can see how in a sense you participate in the work of heresy when you provide hospitality to a heretic. In effect, you're saying, trust me, this person is trustworthy, this person is faithful. He's not a wolf, he's a sheep. But that's a big problem when the person actually is a wolf. Now, maybe you think that's unfair. Maybe you think that's unloving. Why should I be judged harshly for hosting a heretic? I'm just trying to love an unbeliever. Why does my welcoming this particular person into my home and extending a blessing condemn me? That's a really good question. Let me give you a couple of illustrations that might help you to get a sense of the feeling and the weight of this text. So imagine that you're looking for a new mechanic. And you're talking to your coworker about the fact that your car has something wrong with it. And your coworker says, oh, my brother's a mechanic. He has a shop. Let me get you in. So he makes an appointment for you. You go and you take your, your car in and, uh, and you're surprised to learn that the brother fixed it, but he charged you $5,000 for, uh, for $200 worth of work. So you go and you talk to your coworker and he says, what's the deal? He charged me $5,000 for $200 worth of work. And your coworker says, oh yeah, he always does that. Now, question, do you just say, think in that moment, well, it's not my coworker's fault, he didn't do it. No, you're mad at your coworker. He knew that his brother was untrustworthy. Or even worse, imagine a friend recommends a babysitter and that babysitter is un- an unrepentant convicted habitual child abuser. And your friend knew that all along and yet recommended him anyway. If your child gets hurt, do you just think, well, it's not my friend's fault? Of course not. He knew all along. You judge your friend harshly because he recommended someone who was untrustworthy. You blame your friend for recommending this predator. Well, that's kind of what's happening here in this passage. By vouching for this false teacher, 
You're not only providing hospitality, you're also providing this fertile soil for heresy. You're in effect providing a base of operations for missionaries, but missionaries of something other than the gospel, of false teaching. And in doing so, you're endangering others. That's what I want you to grasp from this passage. Remember, I told you earlier, bear in mind the connection between hospitality and love. When you host the heretic in this context, you are endangering others, and that's a profoundly unloving thing to do. So this passage only makes sense if you really understand and appreciate and feel the gravity of the importance of truth and theology and doctrine and teaching, and if you understand what the Bible actually says about love and not just what our culture says or what our feelings says. In other words, we can't just ask, how do I show love to this traveler? That's an important thing. Showing love to travelers, even love to, uh, to our enemies is a biblical virtue. But that's not the only question. The question is also, how do I show love to my family and my friends and my neighbors and my church community? And last week we considered this verse. Second John 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. When we read a verse like this, our innate natural response is to read that very individualistically. We think I, Jeff Ashley, need to watch myself so that I might not lose my reward. And that's absolutely true in a sense. But that's not the full sense. That's not the full truth here. Instead, the text is not merely saying, I, Jeff Ashley, need to watch over myself, but that I, Jeff Ashley, need to watch over James Harris and Mandy Harris and Mindy Brewer and Josh Besong. And on and on we could go. And that they have a responsibility toward me as well. It's not just me as an elder watching over them. It's me as a Christian, me as a brother, and they as my brothers and sisters watching over me, helping me. There's this corporate expression here of mutual responsibility. Me for you and you for me and you for that person that's sitting beside you or behind you or in front of you or whatever it might be. We see this throughout the Bible in dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that tell us to love one another and serve one another. One of my favorite passages expressing this idea of this mutual responsibility we have toward one another is Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now again, there is this tendency we have to read this through a very individualistic lens, a very privatized lens, a very personalistic lens. But the next verse clarifies that isn't the author's point at all. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it isn't just that I take care of myself, but that I take care of you and vice versa. I exhort you. You exhort me, I encourage you, you encourage me. Likewise, I watch out for you and you watch out for me, as John says, to watch yourselves. Here's my point as we tie this back into 2 John. Throughout 1 and 2 John, we have seen how love for one another is one of the badges, one of the identity markers of Christians. We saw three of them in 1 John. One is doctrinal purity, 
That is, there's the theological test that you know the, uh, the correct Jesus. One is a love test that you love one another and one is a moral test. That is, that you have a growing hatred of sin and love for righteousness. So love is one of these badges or identity markers of Christians. We are to love each other. Amen. Yes, we are to do that. But here we see one of the ways that you love others is by protecting them from theological error. John's point is that when you host heresy, you risk the entire covenant community, and that is certainly not a way to love your brothers and sisters. Friends don't let friends become heretics is kind of the idea here. So that's the original context of 2 John 10 and 11. So what do we do with this really admittedly weird text today? All right, we're in a different cultural context. What do we do with this text today? Well, on the surface, at least, we probably shouldn't give money to support Mormon or Islamic missions. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't give money to your Muslim neighbor who lost his job. I would say you can. I would say that you should. That doesn't mean if your your, your brother who pastors a Jehovah's Witness congregation is in town, you can't allow him to stay at your house. I think you can. Though I wouldn't let him lead family devotions for you that night or something like that. Applying this passage is kind of like uh, applying the topic of church discipline. We've talked about church discipline a number of times. We've talked about theological equipping. We've done sermons where we've covered that. The Bible says that if someone who professes and presents themselves as a Christian is engaged in some sort of habitual, unrepentant sin, then you are to go to them. And if they listen to you, great, you've won your brother. But if they don't, then you escalate. You take another along with them. And if they listen to that person, great. But if not, then eventually you tell it to the entire church. If they won't listen to the entire church, the Bible says that you are to have nothing to do with this person, not even to eat with such a person, don't associate with this person. Now, the problem with that is that the church is consistently taught throughout history, that that doesn't mean that you literally can't have any meal with that person whatsoever. Although the Bible does says don't, uh, the, the, although the Bible does say not to even eat with such a one. So what do we do with that? Well, the idea is that you're not to have any contact with a person who is this, in this unrepentant sin after they've been engaged through the exhaustive process of church discipline You're not to have any contact with them that assumes or expresses the idea that everything is okay between you and him or between him and Jesus. That's the idea. Not that you can't have any meal with them whatsoever, but you can't have a meal with them as if things are okay because they're not. Likewise, this passage in 2 John isn't saying that you can't have a false teacher over to your house in any sense but it does mean that you can't do so in any way that would muddy the water. Muddy the water for you, muddy the water for your family, muddy the water for your church or your community, any way that would seem to endorse their teaching. So you shouldn't host a Mormon Bible study in your home or give money to help with the building of a new Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall or neighborhood mosque. You should love your neighbor, but not in a way that actually gives credence to false teaching and theologically endangers yourself or your family or or your church. So that's the surface level. That's the obvious application of this text. Now, to be honest, given how vastly different our culture is from first century culture, I think very few of us are in danger of disobeying this surface level application of the text. When someone has dinner 
at your house today or when someone stays the night with you, we don't attach the same cultural significance as they did in the first century. So we might be tempted to think, well, this passage is therefore irrelevant. I can't disobey this passage. I can just ignore it. I can just neglect it. But that's not what it means. This passage isn't irrelevant because there's an even deeper application that would actually affect every single one of us. And it's come up again and again and again in First and Second John. That is a reminder that we are not only to love our neighbors, but also to love truth. Because apart from truth, we don't know how to love our neighbors. And that's a big deal. The Bible says to love your neighbors. If you don't actually know what love actually is, as the Bible would say it is, you can't carry out that command. Instead, you're just spinning your wheels, calling it love. Apart from truth, what we think is loving actually ends up hurting those whom we claim to love. And so though this passage is explicitly dealing with heresy, I think there is at least some application of this passage beyond just these first order doctrines and an expectation that Christians should grow in their thinking in all areas and understanding the various things that we're talking about in theological equipping. After all, Paul warns us in in Colossians 2, verses eight through nine, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Unfortunately, godless philosophy doesn't wear a name tag that says godless philosophy. It's a snake in a room, but it's hidden itself in a bag. It's hidden under a bed, just waiting as it grows larger until it eventually strikes. So what's our hope? Well, in Colossians, Paul goes on from there and we're reminded Christ is the snake crusher. And those who are passionate for truth turn to Christ as he's revealed in the word of God in order to crush the heads of heresy or falsehood or other theological errors. So let's look at Colossians 3. We'll end with this. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you've been raised with Christ to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, the way that you displace falsehood, the way that you do what Colossians 2 says, which is that you allow no one to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, is by replacing it with truth, a true picture of the true Jesus. So may we be a people who love others by loving the truth. Let's pray as the men come forward. Father, thank you for uh, your word and uh, thank you for this weird little text that uh, at first glance seems um, antiquated and uh, maybe uh, irrelevant to us in our individual context, but I'm grateful that it's not, that all of your word is sufficient and good and helpful and uh, and profitable to us. And so I pray that you would help us to uh, better understand it and apply it to our lives. We would be a people who would love others with all of our hearts, but also a people who love truth with all of our hearts and minds as well, Lord. So only you can do this. And so we ask you for your help in Christ's name. Amen.